0: It's now time for us to turn our attention to the hearing and reading of God's Word. Just a couple of brief announcements before I pray this morning. Uh, The first is uh, we do have Kids Camp coming up in August. I believe it's 8th through the 14th, if I got that right. But if you uh, are interested, if you know of someone who might be interested, this is a great opportunity for outreach and uh, for our church and for families to bring their children here to be instructed in the Lord. So be in prayer for Kids Camp. Think about Kids Camp. Share Kids Camp. Let others know about it. I also want to acknowledge and celebrate with our organist, Yeah, that uh, she has won uh, a special scholarship. She was in a national competition and won the two to 2023-2024 Salisbury Scholarship for her organ performance. So, Yeah, we're we're so, uh, so celebrating with you on this wonderful recognition for you, and we're so grateful to have you with us this morning. So, if you get a chance this morning, please congratulate her as you're leaving a service. With that, let us give our attention and focus uh, to the reading of God's Word. Let us pray for God's light this morning. Oh God, we thank you that you are the God who is light, and that in you there is no darkness at all. At the same time, we recognize that our eyes and our minds and our souls are filled with darkness, that we see through a glass darkly, that we need help. Uh, we are not uh, uh, created and uh, formed in a way because of, of the sin in the world to see clearly. So we pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace and by your Spirit, open our eyes to see Uh, the light of christ this morning to see your truth in your word to really hear your word and to heed it to wrestle with it where we're uncertain about it we pray for your help in doing so through the holy spirit who guides us into all truth we pray this in jesus name amen our scripture this morning is chapter 13 of romans as we're working through romans we're at 13 where we'll be ending in 12 so just a A couple of more uh, sermons on these, on the Romans, and uh, we'll be moving on to something else. Uh, But here we are in Romans 13, after dealing with all of the divisions in the church, we talked all through that, and this is where we kind of see a shift now to an entirely new topic about how Christians are to relate to the civil government. So let's give our heed to the reading of the word this morning. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant, For your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes I feel like I live in a bit of an upside down world, kind of like that, you know, stranger things on the upside down. Things have changed a lot. Uh, in our world, in our country, uh, in my lifetime, as I particularly think about the area of how people relate to politics, how politics is expressed, the nature of our political parties. Uh, For example, for most of my life, it was uh, liberals who were for free speech, whereas conservatives often advocated for censorship of things. And now things have seemed to switch places like it's been turned upside down. For most of my life, uh, liberals were distrustful of the government and the FBI and those areas of law and order and authority in our society. And conservatives were the ones arguing we need to have law and order in our society and our institutions are important and the FBI is good. And now, again, the two have seemed to switch places. As the Kinks put it in that great song, Lola, it's a mixed-up, muddled-up, shook-up world, right? Things have changed a great deal in how we express our politics, and that kind of political switcheroo, that upside-down nature of things, became quite stark and strikingly clear during the time of COVID. We saw these things play out in how people responded to the pandemic and particularly how they related to the government during that time. Almost every poll indicated that Democrats were much more likely to be trusting of everything that came down from the government, whether it was from the FDA, the CDC, or the White House, or wherever. At the same time, on the other side of the aisle, Republicans overwhelmingly were skeptical about those things and distrustful and of course all that played out in the life of the church and you know it played out in its own form here among us we all struggled through that time and i don't think anybody here thinks we got it all right and certainly not the person behind the pulpit but it was during that time that this particular text romans 13 this kind of sleepy pedestrian text there you know in the bible came to the forefront of the church. It was all of a sudden focused upon by both sides in the debate about what the church should be doing, how it should be responding, and for good reason. Because this text, Romans 13, 1-7, is what we call the locus classicus. It is the place to go. It is the most clear teaching in the entire Bible about the nature of civil government and how we are to relate to it as believers. And so it was a proper place to go, and this morning we're going to focus on that, particularly the Christian's relationship to civil government. What does the Bible say? What does Romans 13 say about that relationship? And the way I want to deal with that is, to answer three simple questions, you know, really to ask three questions of the text and answer them. And the three simple questions are these. The first question is, where does it come from? Where does civil government come from? What is its origin? The second question is, what is it supposed to do? That is, what is the purpose or purposes of civil government? And then thirdly and finally, the most important and the most uh, complex of the questions, what do we owe it as Christians? What do we owe to the civil government? What are our obligations to the government? How should we relate to it? So three questions. That will be our outline this morning. And the first two of those questions we'll deal with rather summarily because they're simple questions, really, and the answers to them are quite clear here in the text. It's that third question that we grapple and struggle with the most. So we'll spend most of our time there, how we relate to the civil government, particularly now in 21st century America. So let's look at those questions. Question number one, What, where does a civil government come from? So here's the question about origins. Where does it come from? Is it human creation? Did we make all this up? Well, Paul answers that question unequivocally. He gives us a spot-on, on-the-nose answer to that question, where does civil government come from? Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Where does civil government come from? Answer, from God. It's unequivocal, right? It's clear in the text what Paul is saying. It's what our confession proclaims, the Belgic Confession, Article 36. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. Where does it come from? It comes from God. I don't think I need to spend any more time on that than that, right? Paul says it as clearly as possible. Human government has its origins in the triune God. He gave it to us, He instituted it, He established it, He provided for it. It comes from Him. But why? Why did he give us civil government? After all, we have a king, right? We have God as our king. Part of Israel's problem is that they wanted a human king. They wanted human forms of government, right? Why why did God give this to us? So that's question number two. What is civil government supposed to do? What are its purposes? And Paul answers that question for us, too. It's the next topic he deals with. After telling us where it comes from, he tells us, What it does. Listen to Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. The authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, you could probably get the drift of what Paul is going for there, what he's saying government should do. It's not as clear as the other text, but twice in that text you will notice Paul using this type of phrase about civil government. It is God's servant. It is God's servant. That is, God instituted it to carry out something, some task, some purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, it's twofold. It is, as we are told, to promote what is good, right? Isn't that what the text says? Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval, for it is God's servant for your good. One of the purposes of civil government is to promote good behavior among citizens. And, of course, the flip side to that, right? The other edge of the double-edged sword is verse 4. But if you do what is wrong... You should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. So what is government for? And this is not all it's for, of course, but what does Paul emphasize here in the text? It is for the promotion of good behavior and for the punishment of wrongdoing, of evil or wicked behavior. It has the sword. Now, again, these are not the only purposes of civil government. If you read the Bible, civil government has other roles of promoting justice and righteousness and peace and things like that. But these are the two that Paul brings to mind. This is what he emphasizes, these two elements of civil government, to encourage good behavior, to reward it, and to punish wickedness. And if you do a good study of the Bible, what you recognize is what Paul is drawing on goes all the way back to the Old Testament, back to the time of Noah and the flood. That Paul's really drawing out that idea that was presented to us for the first time in the aftermath of the flood. Because if you remember, what was the flood about? It was about two things, right? Evil was growing. Wickedness was growing in the world. And God needed to do something about that, right? It was becoming so great and so pervasive. And that was destroying the image bearers of God. It was destroying humanity. Humanity was destroying itself. And God saw this one person and his family, Noah, who was doing what was right, who found favor in the eyes of God. And God wanted to protect the seed of the woman, the plan of redemption. So he had to do something about evil. That's what the flood was about, wiping it out, doing a cosmic reboot. And then after the flood, God gives this covenant. We call it the Noahic covenant, this covenant with creation, with all. It's a universal type of covenant. And in that covenant, God said this, Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. Genesis 9.6 now God says that because he also promised not to do this again, right? He said, I will not flood the earth again. I'll not destroy this earth the way this is. So we needed to establish a way of restraining evil and promoting good. And this is where we find the origins, the institution of what we call now civil government. And it is that emphasis on the sword. You see, civil government is both a common grace gift of God, right? It benefits when it's good, when it's done well. It benefits everyone. It's good for whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, right? Good government benefits all humankind, all image bearers. But it also has a role in particular grace in the idea of protecting and preserving the plan of God for the redemption of his people. This has always been emphasized in the Reformed tradition. You'll find it in our own Belgic Confession again in Article 36. So, what is the government for? What are its purposes? Promote good, restrain evil, and do those things for the common sake of all of God's image bearers and for the particular sake of the preaching of the gospel and the the people of God. So that's it. It's not that complicated, right? We understand where government came from. It comes from God. He instituted it. It's a universal statement that Paul makes there in, in Romans 13. And we understand why he gave it to us, what its purposes are. He makes it clear in the text that it is to promote good and to restrain evil. Now for the hard question. And that's question number three what do we owe to civil government as Christians? What do we owe this, this thing that God has created and instituted? Well, Romans 13.1, kind of at one level, makes it pretty easy again. Paul says, let every, every, okay, we got a universal, every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's universal, it's clear. What do we owe to the civil government? According to Paul, we owe subjection, we owe submission, and there, and then, that's what it says in the Scripture. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's the word. It's subjection. It's submission. That's what's required of us. That's what we owe to the civil government. And there's one more thing we owe to the civil government. My least favorite verses in the Bible. <laughs> you know where I'm going there, don't you? <laughs> verses 6 and 7, for the same reason, you also pay taxes. So the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing, pay to all what is due, and he goes on, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. What do we owe to the civil government as Christians? Subjection, submission, honor, and taxes. That's what it says, as simple, as plain as you can do, right? That's the plain reading of the text but it gets more complicated, doesn't it? And we all know, and you're probably already thinking, well, we've got these universal statements, they're very clear. What if I'm living in World War II, you know, Germany? What if I'm living in the Third Reich? Do I have to pay taxes to Hitler? Do I have to follow everything he says and be subject to him and be in submission to him? Right, We all start to think about times where this can't be as universal as Paul is making it. We can't just be blindly subject to the government at all times, can we? Is that really what he is saying? There's got to be exceptions. And that's what most of the exegesis, that's what most of the struggle around Romans 13 is about. What are the exceptions? When is there an exception to this rule that seems so clear, so hard and fast? Doug Moo, in his commentary on Romans, puts it this way. He says, The key question most of us ask when we come to Romans 13 is not what does it mean, right, it's pretty simple, but where is the exception? Since it is taught so consistently in Scripture, we do not have too much difficulty coming to grips with the idea that God has ordained all governing authorities and that we must recognize that we stand under them. But Moo goes on to say, but we do have difficulty with the apparent demand of Romans 13 that we always do whatever any government authority tells us to do. And that's where most of the ink has been spilled in Christian commentary and Christian debate. What are those exceptions? And how do you carve that sucker out? How do you find the room to move and to have exceptions in this? And over time in Christian history, there have been a variety of ways people have looked at this text and argued, here's how you find the exception. Here's where you can avoid what Paul is saying. Here's where it doesn't apply. And in Doug Moo's commentary, he gives seven of those exceptions over time. I'm just going to give you six of them briefly this morning, and I'm relying on his work and want to give attribution to him. And he, he lists these out in the, you know, the least probable to the most probable. So where, where can you find exceptions? Where, how, do you get a, how do you get around you know, Romans 13's seemingly universal ironclad statement that you must always be subject to government? Well, some people have argued this is the least probable. I don't agree with this that hey, this isn't Paul. People have argued that that this text, Romans 13 is not Pauline. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time with that. The argument is because it seems it does seem a little jarringly out of place, right? So people argue, well, this was a later, you know, imposition on the text because, you know, people were worried about not ticking off the Romans and it's really not from Paul and so we don't have to Uh, obey it or listen to it, I, of course, dismiss that one as a viable option. Another option people have come up with is that Paul was just simply naive about civil government. He didn't know what he was was talking about. He had too prejudiced, uh, too positive an opinion as a Roman citizen about government. I think we can dispense with that. Second one. A third argument people have made is Paul had this really short timetable in mind, right? He was thinking, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime, so obey the government because we're all going to be, you know, heading out of town here soon. It doesn't really matter. I don't buy that one either. A fourth uh, argument has been that this is something that is solely restricted to that time period, that culture, that what Paul was saying here in Romans 13 was for only that period of time. It's not transcultural. It doesn't apply to us any longer. But as Mu well argues, you look at that language, it's universal. It's speaking about God and what he's done throughout history. I don't think it's restricted to time. And that's kind of dangerous exegesis, anyways. The fifth argument is Paul was speaking about an ideal state, that you, can, you should obey the government when it's really fulfilling its ideal purposes. But when it's not fulfilling its ideal purposes, you no longer have to obey the government. We know When the state's no longer promoting good and punishing wickedness, well, then you don't have to obey that. That's getting a little closer. That's kind of a popular interpretation about it. There's some merit to that idea. We do want to critique the prophets did this when a government is not fulfilling its role. It should be called to account and and disobeyed at times. But finally, and sixthly, the one that most Christians adhere to, is that what Paul is calling for is submission. Right? He uses that word subjection, submission. And that is different than blind obedience. And that's true. And what the argument is is that there are times when we need to disobey what the government tells us to do. It doesn't mean we no longer submit to the government, but we may not need we may not be able to obey the government and when does that happen most clearly? It's an example of Peter and John, right? In Acts chapter 5, when they're being restrained from preaching in God's name and in, in preaching the gospel. And Peter and John say, you know, God, it's a better, we have to obey God rather than men. When the state restricts you from being able to express your faith or to preach the gospel or to live as you are called to live by God, then there's room for disobedience. To the civil government. But as Moo notes, Christians will, of course, disagree about what those specific occasions might be. And that's where the debate is. We don't always agree on these things. I think all of us agree on, you know, Nazi Germany. That's the easy case. Right? During COVID, we didn't agree. We went through a much harder process, and there's a lot of areas where we don't agree. Hiding Jews in World War II? I think we're all on board with disobeying the government, disobeying the authorities. But a lot of the things we're dealing with now in our culture, we struggle with and have differing opinions on. But there are times when we are called to disobey the government, and there are ways to do that that are proper, and there are ways to do that are wrong. I was reading an article uh, by Elliot Clark on the Gospel Coalition website. It's an article titled, Pastors Around the World. And what he was dealing with there was interviewing pastors who were pastoring in countries where there is strong oppression, particularly of religious freedom. And he asked these various pastors, how does Romans 13 apply in your situation? And all of these pastors shared their viewpoints on that. And they came up with four principles that came from all of these kind of interviews. And that was, one, Romans 13 doesn't assume a good government. You can't just throw it out the door and say, well, there's a bad government. I don't have to follow it. Principle number two is Romans 13 applies in every context. They didn't say in their situation it doesn't apply because they have a government that is oppressive to religious freedom. And principle three was that Romans 13 suggests Christian disobedience of the government is rare. Even these people in places of persecution said that disobedience of the government should be rare. And they spoke a lot about how that disobedience often is something private. That it is something like having a church meeting, a secret church meeting in your home, or maybe a private baptism or something like that. But it's rare. All of these people agreed that. And finally, principle four, that Romans 13 teaches our, dis- dis- our disposition is more important than governmental decisions. What does that mean? It means that what Romans 13 is really getting at is our heart and our response and how we respond to civil government. So there's this tension that goes into all of this, and we feel it even more. This has become a bigger issue because... I think a lot of Christians feel that things have changed so much that the government that once seemed supportive of faith now seems hostile to it. And so we're having these debates and these tensions more and more in the church. But we must be careful. We must remind ourselves of this text and what it really says, what it really calls to. The exceptions are rare. The teaching is straightforward. It is not something we can simply say that was for then and not now. Right? It is not something we can say, well, the government is so bad now, it wasn't so bad then in Paul's day. Well, believe me, however you feel about our current political leaders, Nero was a lot worse Paul was not living in happy town, right? He was not living in a very easy governmental context. And using that type of exegesis of saying it's just, you know, culturally fixed to that day, well, you know, that kind of hermeneutic is used in a lot of ways that you would not want to go down that path. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us wrestling it leads us wrestling with this text it leads us wrestling with our own calling our own conscience before the government when we are to obey when we are to disobey but we are always to honor and be in subject there are few and there are rare times and when we do those things and when you consider disobeying the government remember what the text says remember who established civil government remember its purposes and what happens if you choose to resist it. Those who resist it will incur judgment. And finally, remember what God says you owe to it. Honor and respect and submission and taxes, right? We need to wrestle with those things. We need to treat the text with integrity. We need to hear what God is saying to us. Now, let me be a little more personal here and Maybe a little more political. Uh, So personally, I believe in uh, free markets. I believe in limited government. I believe in human freedom. I essentially agree with Ronald Reagan, who once said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But I also know I speak out of both sides of my mouth on that issue. I will readily sign up for Medicare and Social Security. I'm not going to give up those benefits, right? I've seen the government provide things for members of my extended family in the area of disability benefits that uh, saved families. If a hurricane or tornado or whatever, snowstorm, I'm glad my streets get plowed, right? I, I speak out of both sides of my mouth. But I am wary about government because it is inherently coercive, right? It exists to coerce. It doesn't often persuade. It coerces. It is the Leviathan. It has the sword. That's what the government has. It has the power to bring to bear on people's lives, to coerce them. And sometimes that's used for good and sometimes that's used for ill. I was just reading an article this past week in the Wall Street Journal about the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Have you heard about the Mountain Valley Pipeline? It's a pipeline that runs through West Virginia and into Virginia. It wasn't supposed to be built. It was being stopped. But then they had a budget discussion. You remember when that went right, the whole kind of budget ceiling discussion. And then in those negotiations, a bunch of politicians got together in a room and they had to strike a compromise. And so they threw in this as part of the deal that they were going to build the Mountain Valley pipeline. And in the aftermath of that, a lot of people began feeling the coercive power of government. I read in the article about the citizens of these different areas worried about the quality of their water. I read about the woman who this thing was going to go right through her land, a horse farmer that was going to have his horse farm divided by this pipeline so his horses couldn't cross, you know, to the other side of it. I read about the church where that thing is going to go right down alongside the building 45 yards away from this church about wetlands being drained, and about all these people who are feeling this in a very personal way. It's in their backyard, right? These people make this decision, and now it comes in. It's that pipeline. You can, you can feel that, right? The pain of that, the, the coercion. And we could talk about, well, the government's got to do that. It's for the good of all people, and so, you know, the greater good, whatever. But when the government comes down your throat, like it is there, how does that feel? And a lot of people feel that. It's the power. You know, it's not just in government. I, feel, I see it in our own synod and how we relate and how we talk about power. I don't like things shoved down my throat. I don't like you know, bodies that are distant and, and you know, national, and they, they force things into local situations. Power, its government is inherently coercive, and you feel it. You think about that mother of that, uh, that kid in France, right, in Paris. The government has the sword. They have a power. George Floyd's neck, right? They can literally put their knee on your neck. That's coercion, right? There's coercive power in the government. Now, hear me and don't misquote me. Don't send me emails. I am not endorsing either of these things. I'm not trying to give it moral equivalency. I'm not trying to say anything other than how people feel. If you are pro choice, right? There are a lot of people in this country who are pro-choice, and what they feel when there's abortion restrictions put upon them is like a pipeline going through their body, right? It's this kind of coercive, invasive, personal thing. And by the way, people who resisted vaccine mandates felt exactly the same, that this was being put upon them, right? That coercive power of government. It's by nature coercive. And so inherently, I believe that less government is better government. I believe in that. I'm essentially a libertarian. But I also recognize I can say that because I have many benefits of my life and of my situation. But whatever my personal political views are, I remember that I am also a Christian. And that has to take precedence in my life. And when I look at this text, I cannot view the government as my enemy. I, cannot, I can be wary of it, but I, cannot diso- I can even disobey it at times, but I cannot despise civil government. I cannot despise it no matter who is president. I can't despise it. Why? Because it comes from God. It comes from my king. He's instituted it. He's instituted for the good of people, and he calls me to be subject to it. As a historic uh, historian, Christopher Lash, who taught right here at U of R, he put it this way, and I'll close with this: the problem isn't how to keep religion out of politics, but how to subject political life to spiritual criticism, without losing sight of the tension between the political and the spiritual realms because politics, this is what he says, because politics unavoidably rests on some measure of coercion. It's true. But then he says this, it, that is politics or civil government, it can never become a perfect realm of love and justice. The government, politics is not the place of redemption. It will not save you. That's part of what's wrong in our culture. People want the government to save them. On the right and on the left. Lash says it can never become a perfect realm of love and justice. That's not what God instituted it for. And then he concludes with this But neither can it be dismissed as the work of the devil. We can't dismiss the government as the work of the devil. Why? Because it comes from God, it's instituted by Him with good purposes, and He calls us to honor to respect it, and to subject ourselves to it.